Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Due to some technical difficulties during this episode, you'll be hearing me interrupt once in a while with this. Cybernetic communist voice. Maybe I will come back in future cameo. Blech, Skype. I have been talking about classical materialism, starting from Lucretius, gradually working through Boltzmann, etc. Classical materialism had been based on the idea of the atom, the indivisible atoms. But in the 20th century, it was discovered that atoms could be split. What was the implication of this? It was discovered that there were smaller particles inside atoms. Does this matter for matter? Does it matter? if the atom turned out to be splittable, if the atom turned out to have a nucleus with electrons going around it? Did it matter if the nucleus turned out to be made of neutrons and protons? And did it matter if these, in turn, were discovered to be made up of smaller particles? So, to the question I asked before, does it matter if it turned out that the atoms were not indivisible? No, it doesn't matter, because we're taking the word atom from Epicurus, or not from Epicurus, and in the 19th century, these were mapped onto the atoms of the chemical elements, and that is what the word now means. But from the philosophical standpoint, from the standpoint of the basic theory of materialism, which Epicurus was putting forward, it doesn't matter whether these indivisible particles, these indivisible atoms, were what we now call atoms, or whether we regard these indivisible particles as being the photons, quarks and electrons that we now regard as indivisible. The basic idea which persists from Epicurus is that there are fundamental particles of matter out of which other things are made. Exactly what we call these doesn't matter. Why was quantum theory seen as a challenge for materialism? There appeared to be a number of challenges here. First is that the quantum theory seemed to involve non-determinism. It seemed to involve what was called a wave-particle duality. It involved the existence of non-local effects, which seemed hard to reconcile with the view of materialism. And it introduced, or was made to seem to introduce, an essential role for the observer, the human observer, in the world that was being observed the wave-particle duality. Classical materialism had been based entirely on the idea that things were made out of particles. Duality between particles and, and uh, light continued to be seen as a problem. The standard view that's given of this is the Copenhagen interpretation that in contrast to ordinary mechanics, the new quantum mechanics does not deal with the space-time description of the movement of atomic particles. The difficulties seem to require that renunciation of mechanical models in space and time, which is so characteristic a feature of the new quantum mechanics. So there, in 1934, Bohr seems to be saying we have to chuck out materialism because of these effects, because we can't give a definite position to the particles as they go through slits and other similar circumstances. But in a sense, this is just a recapitulation of Mach. In this variant, the photon has no definite position until it's observed. 
But that's just a repetition of what, what Marx said about scientific observation in general. He said that all science is just about relationships between instrument readings, relationships between observables, that all science is doing in the end is constructing elaborate mathematical relationships between our sense impressions. Now, Lenin objected to this and showing that in the end it reverted to the subjective idealism of Berkeley and ultimately to solipsism. Um, I'm referring to Lenin's criticism and materialism and empiric criticism. Now, in the idealist account, it's the observer who collapses the wave function, collapses the wave and turns it into a particle, bringing actuality, bringing actuality to potentiality. But the question is, what is the observer? The immediate intuition you're supposed to get from the reference to the observer is that it's a human being that does this. But if you consider the interference pattern, you could say that the observer was the silver iodide on the film or the crystals of silver iodide, which when they're hit by a photon turn black. Have they really turned black until someone looks at the film? Is it the person looking at the film which collapses the wave function? It seems we've, we've turned right back to naked Berkeleyism, where things only exist if a human looks at them. Objecting to this, Einstein remarked, you might as well say that the moon doesn't exist when you're not looking at it. It's an absurd position to take when you consider macroscopic objects like the moon. But where does the, the breaking point come? Why should a crystal of silver iodide be something which only exists if someone looks at it? If you once accept the premise that things only exist when you look at them, you might as well extend it to things of arbitrary size. You might as well extend it to the backside of the moon. Did it even exist before the first uh, lunic probe took a photo of it? There's a lot of work going on now to develop quantum computers. And one of the jobs that quantum computers are supposed to be very good at, or in principle should be good at, the correct answer must be attributed to the observation of this by the human operator who looks at the answer on the screen. Now, there is no way the human operator could actually work out the prime factors of a 100-bit number. So here you'd be attributing to the human observer some kind of supernatural power, a mystical power, which enabled them to select the right prime number by some psychic ability. So the uh, idealistic interpretation that was the dominant quantum interpretation from the Copenhagen School leads to absurdities and dead ends. But its dominance is a result of the dominance of the Marcus and positivist theory of science in European universities and physics departments at the time the people who became the leaders of quantum theory were doing their original undergraduate training. There was a perfectly coherent alternative to the idealist Copenhagen view, which was that developed by de Broglie, who developed a quantum theory of motion whereby a quantum wave going through the slits exerts a force on particles that produces the interference effect. He came up with equations of motions for particles in the wake of this quantum wave, which has them following these wiggly courses. 
They seem absurd courses to us since we're used to things going in straight lines. But what he was saying is that there's additional forces exerted on tiny particles by the quantum waves. And these quantum waves cause them to deviate from a straight line path. And the paths that they end up in actually are the paths which give rise to the interference fringes on the film. Now, this theory was further developed by Bohm in the 50s. In the Bohm-de Broglie theory, particles have definite determinate positions. It's not like the idealist theory where particles have no position until we observe them. Any non-local effects come about through the interference of the waves, which then act as forces moving the particles into the positions we see them. In the start of the 1950s, Bohm had written a standard textbook, uh, which was entirely within the framework of the Copenhagen interpretation. Einstein read it and asked Bohm to come and discuss it with him, and over a series of conversations, he persuaded Bohm that this idealist interpretation was wrong. He talked me out of it. I'm back where I was before I wrote the book, said Bohm after meeting Einstein. A year later, Around the time he was sacked from Princeton, exiled to Brazil for being a suspected communist, he came up with a set of papers that built a new theory of mechanics, an extension of the de Broglie theory. Recent experiments have shown that you actually do get the trajectories predicted by the de Broglie and Bohm theory. This is a uh, 2016 paper showing photon trajectories. And you can see they, in fact, don't follow straight lines. They follow the kind of curved paths that give rise to interference effects predicted by the de Broglie-Bohm theory. So, in conclusion, what I'm saying is that the apparent quantum challenge to materialism was just a dressing up of pre-given Marxist prejudices, which the physicists who first developed quantum theory had been inculcated with during their training. The same prejudices that initially caused physicists in Germany to reject Boltzmann's atomic theory. Since 1927, there has been a deterministic theory of motion, the de Broglie theory. This theory has led to fruitful results. Bell, the guy who invented Bell's inequality, was a Bohmian, and from Bell's inequality has followed the harnessing of non-locality to things like quantum encryption. The rejection of Bohm's theory was not due to science, but among other reasons, the fellow physicists like Oppenheimer at Princeton said they weren't interested in, in Bohm's theory because he, by that stage he was regarded as a Marxist, a fellow traveller, traitor to the USA. In addition, of course, you have the fact that established professors would find it very hard to accept the paradigm shift. If they had been lecturing for 20 years on the Copenhagen interpretation, they were not going to enjoy someone coming up and saying, well, some of your basic assumptions are wrong.
up in South Africa? Yeah, yeah, I grew up in South Africa. Wow. Till I was I, 19. So, so are you yeah. down with the Kwaito and... Oh, I love Kwaito, man. Yeah, yeah, I love Kwaito. Love, love, love house, Pansula, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, really, all that stuff. I was actually, I've only been to Beijing for a year. I was, I was back in South Africa for two years before this. I uh, did my master's there and uh, yeah, I was, was really enjoying being back on the, listening to some home music and stuff. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> love that. As you know what Kwaito is, yeah, yeah. That is my shit. Oh, you like Kwaito? Those rolling bass lines and uh, yes, 90s, yes. like late 90s, production uh like it, yeah. it's perfect i mean it, it's fucking yeah. the wicked music ever and yeah, you know yeah. I, I have theories about shangan disco from the 70s oh, really? to, the 80s, to the 80s being li- actually actually the backbone of kwaito that's a really interesting uh, theory i mean i mean i guess that's where it would come from isn't it because yes yes and, and yeah. from, a, from a marxist uh perspective it also makes sense because because the Shangam people are, of course, the poorest of the poor in South Africa. Yes, yeah, the most, the most downtrodden. Yeah, they are the most downtrodden. Yeah, exactly. They're, 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 even within within African communities, yeah, they still get a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, xenophobia. Whatever. We go further into this and more in an upcoming episode where we touch on the fruit is some mutations in North America. Not as uh, you know, it's it's a, it's 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 obviously an older sound now. I mean, mostly now it's Pansula and. Yeah. And, you know, it's called African House, I guess. Yeah, Afro House. Yeah. Exactly. Cool, man. Okay, so um, yes, we have uh, Jao with us tonight. Uh, welcome, Jao. Hello, everyone. So um, if you don't mind, Jao, if you tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you're currently in Berlin, but you have worked in some, some interesting places and in some interesting projects, too. Yes, I'm currently in the former East uh, part of Berlin, Prenzlauer Berg. It's been gentrified a lot, but this was the part uh, former GDR, uh, DDR, Eastern Berlin. Um, yeah, I've been here a few years, some years. I came to the city to do music um, and journalism and some other things because I was tired of Hollywood, which is where I was before. I was um, working in Los Angeles for about 10 years after Arts University. And uh, yeah, some years before that, I went to the United States with my family who emigrated, who was a part of that uh, mid-80s, early 80s, mid-80s wave of emigration of mostly skilled uh, intellectual class um, scientists, doctors that left China um, due to historical processes, which is kind mm-hmm. of tragic. Mm-hmm. We will talk about that a little bit more later, I suppose. Yeah. So yeah, yes. so, yeah, yeah. so I, I live in Berlin, and I, you know, I've been DJing and making music and writing a lot and reading a lot, and it's a nice little right. corner, a nice little neoliberal bubble to be in for the moment. <laughs> okay, I suppose people will be interested since you you did you did mention it uh, you, Hollywood. So what what were you working on in Hollywood? Oh, uh, art direction. Um, I'm an art director and also motion graphics designer. So I did I did a lot of um, branding for television and film. I did uh, a lot of intro animations back mm-hmm. when. 
uh, studios used to do them. <laughs> Remember in the 90s, it was a big thing. It's like <laughs> extravagant, extravagant animated title sequences before every film. Remember Seven, the, the movie Seven, that was really, really big. Yes. Like, but then in the recent years, budgets have been cut and uh, film studios tend not to do that anymore. And it's just like, you know, the logo of the movie and then cut straight into, into the thing. Right, right. Okay. And journalism, uh, what, what kind of journalism do you do? Well, I'm not a normal journalist. I don't go to places and cover events. I'm more, I'm, I guess I'm more of an essayist. Um, I publish uh, online and for a few different uh, publications. My, um, yeah, my pieces have been translated into many different languages, into German, into Portuguese into Spanish and um, yeah, I, I'm more which of an essay. essays. Which essays are this? So what's the sort of the the most prominent or most popular uh, essay of yours that's been uh, published? Um, they're they're usually uh, around culture and politics, and sometimes both together. Like <laughs> my specialty is kind of a Marxist uh, historical materialist interpretation of culture. Hmm. And and okay. and a politics as well, but you know it's kind of kind of kind of a gray area where I think not a lot of people are are focusing on. So I think that's my little niche. Um, as far as most popular articles, uh, the one the one on China actually is pretty popular. That's been translated into three different languages, I think, or four. What's the title of that article? It's called. Uh, the long game and its contradictions. Okay, great. Okay, very interesting. Okay, I think I'll, I'll see. I'm sure people will probably read that now that uh, you've shared it a bit wider. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you did mention the family background there. So the mid-1980s wave of people that moved out of China. Uh, yeah, so what, your family was a part of that. So why did they, why did they leave? Well, because they experienced a particularly bad um, part of the cultural revolution, um, well, of the entire revolutionary historical process, uh, they suffered. They were sent to uh, camps, work, work camps um, in remote areas of China for doing things like listening to um, vinyl records of, of uh, Chopin right. and Beethoven and, you know, reading, reading Einstein. Um, that was one of the absurd, the most absurd things because Einstein was a socialist. Um, <laughs> uh, and my, my father was a physicist. Actually, both my parents were physicists and, um, so as, as scientists, as doctors, as skilled, um, educated, intellectual class, they bore the brunt of the Cultural Revolution and of the wrath of these uh, students, these inexperienced students and uneducated uh, peasants who were given basically the power of life and death over, over uh, professors and over... over um, the classes above them, so to speak, in the hierarchy. 
Wow. Okay, so just 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 because it's there. I mean, how, how long were they in the, these camps for? Five years. Five years. Five years each. Yes, and it was grueling. They told me stories. Um, my the, my father used was on a building was on a dam building team, and they would build this dam. And as soon as they finished, like after a year or two, they would blow it up, and they would have to start over again. What? Yeah, it's uh, at least that's how that's what he said to me. And of course, the conditions were terrible, and uh, yeah, just really, really bad times. And this, you know, this is such a mistake in the revolutionary road, on the revolution, revolutionary road, um, a mistake, you know, on the in the direction of ultra leftism, of pure communism. Uh, and and it's it's really disastrous. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party. I'm sure you know has uh, repeatedly, uh, in no uncertain terms, called that episode disastrous, catastrophic. Um, and they've apologized to the Chinese people and saying that this will never happen again. Um, which is not to say that there are not also some silver lining, some positive effects of the Cultural Revolution. So what do you think the silver linings were? Well, the poorest segments of society were imbued with a sense of political power, of empowerment. They, for the first time in history, the poorest peasants, the uneducated uh, peasants and workers, felt like their voice voices mattered in politics, and that you know their lives mattered, or their voices and in decision making that they had, they were empowered to to uh, to develop a political subjectivity i think that's that's very very um very good um but obviously the, that the only um the cultural revolution is not the only way to achieve that obviously but but i mean um for these gains you know these small gains i think the the catastrophic effects were much greater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so on, on balance, yes, on balance, it's a not, not, you know, not, not worth those silver linings, not worth it. In a sense. Yeah. yeah, one of the losses, one of the great losses is losing almost an entire generation of scientists like my parents, you know, to, to the West, to the imperialists. I mean, my, mm -hmm. um, they, these skilled and highly educated people went abroad went to went to the USA a lot. A lot of them went to the US and some, you know, to Germany and France and but, you know, working giving their talents and giving their uh, education and their skills to the imperialists, which is really tragic. And of course, there's many, many other bad, uh, terrible effects like the destruction of old culture. You know, just because uh, culture I mean, there's a larger philosophical point here as well, right? Just because a culture is produced under unjust circumstances and produced within an unjust system, right, doesn't mean that the culture is completely worthless and should be thrown away, right? Like Chinese classical painting or classical poetry or... European classical music or art 
you know, just because they're produced under unjust systems doesn't mean that there's no value. I mean, people make amazing things, whatever system they're under. So just because, you know, um, some old Chinese paintings, you know, depict monarchs or exalt, you know, uh, kings and some European, you know, classical music is, is uh, patronized by the church mm-hmm. or, you know, things like that. It doesn't mean that the art itself, the culture itself is uh, completely bad and should be thrown away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I just want to go back just a little bit to uh, just, just the, the more specific, the most personal again. Um the because uh, I think there's a, a bit of a, a tendency, at least within uh, outside of China, is that uh, t- people tend to sort of have a sort of a giant monolithic view of China. Could you maybe specify where where exactly was your family in China? Which province? And uh, and I assume they've come back at some point and visited. Uh, yeah, my family is from Beijing. Um, we are of the Han. Uh, majority and uh, you know the communist party when they came to power in 1949 had reversed the um, Han centric policies of the nationalist party of the KMT of the Kuomintang completely Um, they implemented many many policies to uh decrease the Han chauvinism. Uh, Han chauvinism, of course, is a problem because the unification of China through its history uh, about, what, 2,000 years prior, 2,000 years ago, um, was under the Han dynasty. uh, And the Han people became the dominant ethnic group in China. And of of a total of uh, 55 or 60, no, uh, more than that, 80 was it? I can't remember exactly how many officially recognized ethnic ethnic groups in China. But um, but yeah, there were there were uh, a lot of policies implemented um, to to make sure that ethnic minorities rule their own regions. Like today, in the the governance of different provinces um, are always, without exception, led by um, members of the ethnic minority that lives in that region. Um, and I also see. many, many other policies which, which uh, dwarf the affirmative action uh, policies of the United States as a comparison. Mm. Like, uh, ethnic minorities have never been subjected to the one-child policy. Han people were. Han people could only have one child, but, you know, um, all the ethnic minorities could have uh, either two or three or, in some cases, as many as they want. But And many, many other things, like, you know, they need lower test scores to get into universities. Uh, special universities were constructed just for, just for them, just for the ethnic minorities and that teach in their languages. And there are lots of cultural protection programs, which uh, which make sure that their cultures are not forgotten, their languages are preserved, and their cultures are are safe and not destroyed 
contrary to what you know a lot of propaganda anti anti communist and anti china propaganda in the west mm. spreads mm. Mm. okay yeah no it's it's fascinating um and just just one thing yeah so uh, obviously following the cultural revolution in your your family's uh, experience with that or your parents experience with that more particularly uh when they go back to beijing uh, now uh do they do they come across the people that were you know uh, doing those things or i suppose were they in a different place and and also what do they think of modern china like today china today well that's that's a bit hard to hard to um answer because um okay my parents were young socialists at the beginning of the cultural revolution but after they had turned completely 180 degrees away from socialism and that's the tragedy of the cultural revolution is is that it turned a lot of good people uh, against communism and against uh, the communist party but um yeah so they embraced western capitalism and liberal liberal uh ideology completely uh today they they live in texas they live in a they live in a in one of those sort of tracked homes in a suburb of dallas and they watch cnn all day every day <laughs> so so they're so they're to- total total uh, anti-communists now and they, they had become I mean, but maybe there were already some class. Uh, I mean, their parents were not landowners. My grandparents from both sides were not landowners, but they were privileged. Um, so maybe there are some class interests there that sort of made them ready to sort of betray socialism. But I, I don't know. That's just largely conjecture. So today. Mm. Today, when they yes, so, so yeah. What about modern China? What, what, what do you, uh, I guess, I guess their opinion might be predictable if they're uh, watching CNN all day and, and and have have committed to to the sort of more imperialist or liberal view of things. Uh, what, what do you think of of modern China? So particularly since 1979. Well, I was just going to say, um, yeah, my views uh, were growing up as you know can be predicted like those of my parents. I, uh, in 19, when was it? 94, uh, was actually in the protests, um, against Tiananmen Square or a part of the Tiananmen, um, student protests, but I was doing it from the United States. I was 15 or 14 or 15 years old. But, um, so yeah, I, you know, grew up, basically since age 12 uh, in the U.S., the formative years. So uh, obviously I absorbed all the normalized, you know, Western capitalist thinking. And, um, but, but I, I've been fortunate enough uh, that through observation and study and uh, independent thinking, um, been able to disabuse myself of all of that liberal nonsense and sort of see the bigger picture of modern China and it's 100 years of uh, revolutionary history, 70 years. So what do I think? 
I I think socialism with Chinese characteristics is a continuation, is an extension of Marx and Lenin. Uh, I think Marxism, uh, historical materialism and dialectical materialism are not dogmatic, written in stone ideas that should never be challenged or, or adapted. Uh, the exact opposite. It's a, it's alive. It uh, it adapts itself to every different situation and time period and the specific conditions of each place. So um, I think I think socialism with Chinese characteristics is exactly that. Is Marxism for the twenty first century and for China. And I think this phrase, when it first came out, remember when we first heard it, I mean, I thought it was really awkward and really wordy. But over time, I've come to, I think, understand more of why it has to be the, this particular phrase for several different reasons. One, I, I've just mentioned, um, because it's the Chinese characteristics, right? And as also 21st century uh, conditions. But also, I think the phrase has a built-in, built-in internationalism in it, because what it what it means, what is not said, what it means is that it's socialism with Chinese character characteristics, uh, so that it's not exportable to other countries, and it implies that every country should develop socialism with their characteristics. So socialism with German characteristics, with French, with Haitian, with U.S. American, with Venezuelan, with you get the point. So I think I think that's what the phrase yeah. means. Yeah, I think that's a part of what the phrase means. And um, as far as as far as Deng Xiaoping and reform and opening up, I mean that was absolutely necessary. I mean there was no other socialist nations to trade with anymore after the 90s, after the eight, late 80s and 90s, after the fall of Yugoslavia and, and East Germany and um, the Soviet Union, of course, there was hardly any, any socialist countries left to trade with. So uh, under those conditions, China had to develop. 40 years ago, it was poor. It was more, more poor than average African countries 40 years ago. When I was a child, I remember going outside in the middle of the night during winters colder than in Berlin uh, to take a shit in a hole in the ground. We had running water. We were privileged, like I was saying. Uh, but there was no indoor plumbing. Um, and we were the privileged. Like The majority, uh, majority of the country had no running water, no electricity. And the GDP was lower than that of average African countries at that time. Merely 40 years ago, in 1980, uh, 1979, yeah, around that time, around the time of uh, Mao's death. So there was simply no other option. It, um, and, you know, it's very, very complex. We can go into in detail. I don't know how detail you want to get into about the geopolitics, you know, because I think, I think you can, you can go as, uh, as, as far as you'd like, really. Hmm. Okay. Let me formulate 
because it's so complex. Um, so the Cultural Revolution was about sort of an ultra-leftist, we can achieve socialism with poverty. In, in fact, that's one of the slogans is that, you know, we can, we can, we can become communist, pure, purely communist without, you know, uh, without money, without being, um, developing ourselves in a material way, materially development. Um, and Deng Xiaoping was, uh, was the, was the antithesis of that. Um, and it's, it's so important because that's the only way that socialism in China was saved. Because if reform and opening up did not take place, China would have collapsed, like uh, the countries in Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union. Um, what Deng Xiaoping and Zhou Enlai and these guys did was to not turn away from secondary contradictions, but embrace them. Um, what do you mean by, if, if you don't mind explaining detailing, secondary contradictions for, for some people? Yeah, the primary contradiction, of course, is as Marx uh, had, had, had explained so well, class. Right, you have the bourgeoisie, you have the working class, you have those who live from owning uh, and those who live from selling their labor. That's the primary contradiction of our of our time, of our just capital. Yeah, capital exactly. So we cannot abolish that given uh, when when the historical conditions are not ready, right? And the secondary contradictions are everything that arises from that primary contradiction, which is, you know, things like religion and, uh, I don't know, um, things like marriage or things like uh, a lot of other things. Just basically everything that's wrong with the world that comes from this basic primary contradiction of, of, <clears throat> of inequality based on an inheritance and ownership. Like if you, yeah, we, we know what that means because you get Donald Trump, you get some idiot who inherited billions of dollars and large estates, you know, having a lot of power that they have no ability, ability to wield or they didn't earn it. So that's the injustice. That's the fundamental injustice. And then the secondary contradictions are everything that arises from that. But anyway, um, the, the ultra-leftists, the, like, like uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, like the gain of four that instigated the Cultural Revolution in China, uh, wanted to get, they wanted to get ahead of them. So they, they were getting ahead of themselves. They, were, they wanted to abolish the primary contradictions without uh, first attaining the material basis for doing so. Um, so that's a bit of a correction of what I said earlier. When I, I, I said earlier, the secondary uh, contradictions cannot be abolished. But, but in this case, it's more about they wanted to abolish the primary contradictions when the country was not ready, when, um, when the world is not ready. So to, to reformulate what I first said, it's, it's more about uh, 
we cannot abolish the secondary contradictions, so we have to embrace them and subordinate them to the revolutionary cause. In common language, that means we cannot immediately abolish money and class and um, yeah, basically money and class and, and the state. We cannot immediately abolish that because the country is so poor and because if we, if we did that, the imperialists are going to destroy us within two months. Um, so we have to embrace the secondary contradictions. We have to embrace the market. We have to embrace the market based on private entrepreneurship. Uh, we have to embrace, you know, certain amount of capital. We have to embrace foreign investments. Mm. And but but these things do not control politics. These things are not at the command of the state and mm. of the country. So so basically, it's uh, not being afraid of secondary contradictions and not being afraid of yeah contradictions in, in general. But to embrace them and to use them towards our end, towards the revolutionary socialist end. I see. But I think just to detail, um, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, another one of the secondary contradictions is obviously between uh, peasants and proletarians and the development of those classes within China. Is, is that correct? Yeah, for sure. Well, yes, yes. I mean, there are some difficulties there, of course, because... China was largely agrarian. It was largely it's a peasant economy. There was no, uh, not very many factory workers because there were no factories when uh, the revolution happened in 1949. So industrialization and uh, yeah, so so the growth of the peasants was of course Mao's Mao Zedong's uh, central point or how he adapted Marxism, which was about the workers, and Mao Zedong made it about the peasants primarily, which Trotsky hated. But anyway, <laughs> let's not get into that. Um, um, but yeah, this, this expressed itself, this contradiction expressed itself in the 80s, right? Um, in the 80s, when Deng Xiaoping was, was in power, uh, the growth was... Uh, or the development focus was on the peasantry, was on the rural areas of China, which were much more poor, even more poor than the urban areas. And so the urban uh, population became discontented. They were disaffected because their growth had, had slowed uh, when all of the focus and attention was was on the rural communities and that's a part of the reason for the Tiananmen uh, uprising is because the urban students were not happy with uh, the economic development at that time this was only a few years after the reform and opening up and they felt like nothing was happening or it was not happening fast enough um someone has said uh a great analogy uh, comparison or an, an analogy of a bus driver, right? The the people sitting on the left side, on one side, feel like the bus is going too fast and people on sitting on the other side feel like the bus is going too slow. Um, and so everybody was blaming the bus driver. 
and that was kind of the the situation in, in the late eighties, mid to late eighties. And of course, the CIA exploits these temporary discontentments um, within the students. They um, through uh, the um, NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, and other such uh, non-governmental, quote, non-governmental, end quote, organizations, <clears throat> disseminating a lot of propaganda about, quote, democracy, end quote, and, and about how uh, bad and repressive the socialist government is, and turning all of these young people against socialism and against the Communist Party, um, fomenting this kind of large-scale unrest, which was um, one of one in a series of attempts at destabilization and to balkanize, to break up China, to balkanize China, to destroy it, and to once again enslave China and bend it towards the will under the will of the imperialists once again. And to I, I thought I'd jump in there, sorry, just because it is a really interesting point that you've raised there. I, I, maybe if we could explore that for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, with the, uh, the sort of example of the Soviet Union and perhaps even Yugoslavia and what balkanization looks like and what it can do to a socialist state, yeah. a communist state, uh, what do you think the chances are of something like that ever happening to China? Uh, yes. Well, now there's hard, there's no chance. Um, socialism is getting stronger and stronger. The country is prosperous. People are optimistic and they trust in the leadership. Um, the wildcat strikes, uh, of which there are numerous, very, very many in China, uh, that Westerners misunderstand. Uh, the vast majority of the workers' strikes in China are appeals to the central government. They are, uh, these are people that are unhappy with local level uh, corruption, with uh, local officials and CEOs and the private owners of business uh, being self-serving and being unjust and uh, committing crimes often uh, or sometimes against the people. And they're appealing to Beijing. They're appealing to the Communist Party to like, say, hey, you better do something. These assholes are acting in a, in a bad way. And the vast majority of times, uh, the Communist Party does step in on the side of the workers and punish the local <clears throat> politicians and uh, business owners for corruption. So China is in a, in a strong place now, unlike 1989. In 1989, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, it was in a very precarious and dangerous situation. Um, Deng Xiaoping was already ill. He was already uh, bedridden and he was on his way out and there was going to be a power vacuum uh, in, in China. And the CIA already had their man. Um, I forget his exact name. His, it's the same last name as me. Uh, Zhao something. But anyway, that was the CIA's man who was going to assume power, who wanted to uh, take power, kind of like uh, that guy in Venezuela now, um, Juan Guaido. 
But anyway, mm. yeah, if that had happened, if if a student uprising, which was what ten million strong or something like that, had uh, succeeded, if if you know the Communist Party didn't play their cards perfectly right, this guy would have taken power and he would have completely opened up China to the domination of foreign capital and of U.S. empire. And that would have been the end of socialism in China. And, and uh, so, yeah, if, if we can come back to socialism in China right now. So I, I know that it is a deep and you know big thing to explore. It's difficult to see sort of where to start and where to, to end. Um, but you, you were detailing earlier about the state and the, the how capital or foreign business, how enterprise or capitalists don't dictate the terms of the state, don't dictate the terms of the government. Could you give us more detail on that? So how does that work? What does it look like? Well, um, in every privately owned business, uh, well, okay, before we even get into that, uh, the Chinese economy or the Chinese industry is uh, separated into the state-owned industries and the privately-owned industries. All of the major industries, which is energy, uh, steel, um, things like that, are state-owned. They have never been privatized um, like they were in, in, uh, in Russia following the fall of the USSR like they were in Yugoslavia, in Poland, in every place where socialism fell. Uh, everything, especially the state industries, the major industries, were immediately um, cannibalized, immediately just gobbled up by these vultures that bought factories for pennies, for you know a few hundred dollars, a few hundred euros, or a few hundred, uh, for very, very cheap, um, but this never happened in China. The major industries are controlled by the state. Uh, now, the private sphere is completely under the auspices of the Central Committee of the, the Communist Party. In every corporation, private corporation, there is uh, at least one Communist Party member that is overseeing uh what goes on overseeing production and the things that that they do and if the ceos um and the financial elites the bankers if they uh, violate state policy if they commit crimes against the people if they embezzle money if they you know um what is that trading uh Insider trading. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like what the Wall Street bankers were doing that caused the, the financial crash of 2008. Uh, they are sent to prison and oftentimes even are executed. So these financial elites absolutely do not run politics. They do not run the government. I see. Okay. And um, in terms of... Uh, in terms of social provision of healthcare, education, and uh, sort of uh, retirement and things like this, how, how does that play out in, in, in socialist China? Well, I'm a little bit unclear, and I don't remember exactly the details of healthcare. I think the healthcare providers are private at the moment. 
Um, you probably know more about that than me because you have health insurance there, right? Yes, yeah. So my health care is, is private, yeah, with, uh, with the yeah, company I work yeah. with. It's private, yeah. Right. So, yeah, I, I think I think most private, most most uh, healthcare is private. Um, education, I'm not entirely certain. I, I'm pretty sure that's state right, right? Yeah, uh, there are some private schools, but um, at least uh, the the big there are some private schools in Beijing. But obviously, um, the big elementary schools and high schools are state-owned, regional sort of uh, or neighborhood-based uh, government right. ones. Right, right. Yeah. And the most competitive um, ones are the government ones as well, the most, the, the, the most uh, ambitious and uh, highly sought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and from what I understand, Marxism is a required curriculum, right? Part of the curriculum in, in all high schools and all universities. So that's that makes my heart sing when I think about that. But... Um, but uh, uh, yeah, and, and that's an example of democratic centralism, right? Um, democratic centralism, Westerners probably are not very familiar with uh, how it works. It, it's basically proceeding from a local provincial level all to, to the town, to the, uh, to the, uh, to the town and then all the way up to the central state. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very authentically democratic process that um, the elections, there are elections that go from local neighborhood level to, to provincial level and then all the way up. But anyway, yeah, just as an example, I think, I think the education system very much um, is, is a reflection of that. Hmm. So I think what I'll, what I'll do is I'll ask you two two questions together, which I'm sure um, you've probably heard a variation of these arguments before. But these are obviously, I suppose, devil advocate sort of questions. Um, you know, with the development of of, of big private firms, uh, you know, Jack Ma and uh, sort of big big capitalists in China, um, some of them have membership to the party. And what do we think? How do you think that plays out? within the party and its class character. And then also, maybe we'll go into that one first and I'll ask the, the, the other question after that, but go ahead, John. Well, I think, I think there's um, a constant uh, conflict within, within the party. I, I think there's, there's um, the neoliberal wing faction, uh, which is constantly pushing for more privatization and constantly pushing for more Western U.S. style uh, neoliberalism, and then there's on the other side, the extreme other side. There's the uh, ultra lefts, ultra leftists who want cultural revolution part two, and um, I guess Xi Jinping is directly in the middle. I mean, he's a centrist within that context, right? Not. The centrist that Westerners need. There's a lot of Western centrists. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so so yeah. I think I think there's a lot of class class uh, conflict and antagonism within within the Chinese Communist Party. Um, as, far, as far as Huawei, oh no, wait. What did you say? Did you say Huawei or Jack Ma? I said Jack Jack Ma. Right. It's just something interesting. I um, just recently learned 
that uh, about the South China Morning Post. You know, you know this newspaper from from Hong yes. Kong. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's it's one of the most visible, uh, maybe the most visible newspaper coming out of China, larger China um, that Westerners uh, have access to. Uh, and and the paper is very often reactionary, and the paper is is often uh, repeating sort of imperialist uh, perspectives on China. Uh, you know, reporting positively about the Hong Kong astroturf uh, color revolution. You know, uh, being uh, being biased against the Communist Party and things like that. And and I've always wondered if Jack Ma owns the newspaper, owns the South China Morning Post, and he's a part. Of, he's a member of the Communist Party. Why does the paper? You know, why does the paper do this? Uh, is he, is he, does he own the paper? I just recently learned that when Jack Ma bought the paper from, uh, bought the paper some years ago. Okay. First of all, the paper was always primarily for um, immigrants. Uh, from the West that were living in Hong Kong. It was a newspaper for the foreigners, for the English speakers, for the for the English people and the Australians and yeah, the foreigners. Um, so that was their uh, the, the their audience base. And when Jack Ma bought the newspaper some years ago, uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, conditions of the deal was that he would not impede on the editorial policies of the paper, that he would leave the staff completely intact and allow them to do what, it, what, what they do. So anyway, just a little side note. But yeah, um, these private, private companies um, in, in China, uh, I think many of them, are uh, are are happy being directed uh, by by the state because there's a logical central planning, you know, as far as the markets is concerned. Um, but of course, many of them are not satisfied, and they want total, you know, so-called quote free market end quote, which is you know um, the rich and powerful can do whatever they want and exploit as much as they want and, and, uh, and have, and now be impeded by, by the socialist government. And so people like this, the, uh, when they get punished, they go and cry to, um, to the Western media, which amplifies their voice exclusively about the oppression of of the Chinese Communist Party and their company was taken away or they were fined uh, hundreds of thousands or millions, um, you know, things like this. So, so yeah, I, I think I think China is in a transitional period and there's a lot of these kind of contradictions. And um, but the but the party, which is 90 million strong, uh, is doing a very good job of steering the ship, uh, avoiding pitfalls. On both sides, I think. I mean, I think many of us would like to see these douchebags driving Ferraris and Lamborghinis 
through Shanghai, um, kind of, you know, uh, get a little bit uh, more controlled or uh, humiliated because there's some assholes in China, just like everywhere else. And these super rich kids that are spoiled and, you know, like act like idiots. But anyway, but, but I think that the time, the timing has to be right. I think, I think China is on in the direction of, of uh, socialization, of more socialization, of less privatization, um, and towards the general direction of communism, of course. So where do you see uh, China and socialism in, in the near future? Uh, what's it going to look like in 2049? Well, I think, I think um, the words of the party and of Xi Jinping can be trusted. Uh, when they say the officially stated goal is socialism, is fully developed socialism by mid-century, by 2050, I, I think that is their real goal. I think there is no ulterior, you know, subtext. Um, there's nothing to read into it. Um, I think I think that is the honest um, goal of the country and of the party. Um, yeah, I mean, the Communist Party doesn't actually say that China is already a socialist country. Uh, and it's not. It's not a 100% socialist country. It's a country with a mixed economy, part uh, capitalist, uh, part socialist, uh, with money, with private ownership, even though there's no uh, generational landlords uh, and things like that. But it's still partly capitalist. So what the China Chinese Communist Party says that we are a a uh, mixed country. We're not a not yet a socialist country, but run by a socialist party, run by a communist party, and that we are we are working towards achieving full socialism, full fully automated luxury uh, space socialism. Right, and I think I think that's I think China is well on its way towards that. I mean, I think in the next uh, decades, we're going to see world historic changes in not only China, but around the world. I think the main catalyst of these changes will likely be the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, I mean, fusion energy. Um, I mean, um, uh, beyond 5G. Uh, beyond 5G, I mean, we're talking about one terabyte per second, right? One terabyte per second on the internet. So that's that's literally a whole new world. That's a new landscape that we have not explored. I mean, that's a whole new canvas. That's a whole new reality. That's a whole new sensory um, world. But anyway. Um, but I just, where do you see, how would China relate to the rest of the world in 20? 49 and 2050 with uh, with that sort of uh, so fully automated luxury sort of space socialism. Where, where do you see China in that? Well, back to Chinese um, socialism, right? Socialism with, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Uh, China does not export revolution like past socialist states. China does not get involved in the politics of other nations. What China is doing, uh, which is 
the only way that revolutionary uh, revolutionary struggle can be conducted in this day and age, from my analysis and I guess many others, um, is not classic class struggle. Is not violent overthrow. Well, that may be a part of it, uh, but later, and China is not going to be the one doing it in other countries. Um, it's through mutually beneficial trade and development. Um, when poor countries become developed and econ- economically economically powerful, imperialism will recede, and imperialism will be defeated, uh, and it will end. So when imperialist control, foreign control of poor areas, regions like Africa and Southeast Asia and Latin America stops, this will allow the world to heal. This will allow socialism to to bloom in the imperial core, as well as the imperialized, the uh, colonized, formerly colonized regions of the world. Uh, I think this will give everybody a breathing space to develop their own socialism. I think uh, the material basis for global transformation, for global socialization, is the most important thing. It's more important than, you know, sort of ephemeral political struggles. Governments come and go, leaders come and go, um, but infrastructure will stay. Uh, people's prosperity, people's uh, rising living standard will stay. And when people are no longer just trying to survive, and when people are no longer, you know, um, constantly ravaged by war, by by foreign bombs, by imperialism, uh, people can develop themselves. And there's this trust, right? That's, we go back to like the essence of Marxism and the essence of historical materialism. People uh, are collective creatures. We, it is in our nature to help each other and to, uh, and to work together. And I think this is the center of, of all socialism. And I think this is at the center of what China is doing on the international stage. But I do want to bring something back uh, to the conversation, which is just, of course, we are talking about the future of China. And we we have touched on this mildly, but maybe it might need some more detail. It's the, um, the situation with Hong Kong. Where do you see that actually ending? Where do you see that going? The situation with Hong Kong is already subsiding, right? The protests have largely petered out. Uh, when the bourgeois ba- backers of the protesters, you know, that, that guy, um, what's his name? Do you remember his name? The owner of Apple Daily? Uh, it's um, uh, um, Wang. Uh, um, it's Andrew. No, what's his name? Um, yes. Uh, the, the young guy from the 2014 movement as well. Uh, we might be talking about two different guys. But anyway, the, the media tycoons, the the owners of property in Hong Kong, they were largely backing the protests along with foreign agents that want to destabilize China. Um, I think, yeah, uh, uh, these uh, rich, uh, the, the, the bourgeoisie who were backing the protests 
you know, are seeing their businesses go down and they, I don't think they want the protests to continue. But I think the damage is already done. I think um, Hong Kong is going to play a much less central role in south, southern China as it did previously. Um, in the 70s and 80s, Hong Kong was so rich because it was the port into China. All the foreign businesses that wanted to do business with China had to go through Hong Kong because China was not open, it was closed. So that's why Hong Kong became so rich during those decades. And when China opened up and you know, business could be done through Shanghai and through Beijing and through Chengdu and all these other places, uh, the special status uh, of Hong Kong being the port, the single port to this enormous market that is this continental wide market that is China uh, ended. And so Hong Kong became poor during the 90s uh, since the handover. Hong Kong became not as prosperous as before. And uh, of course, these young people who don't understand that blame it on socialism and blame it on the Communist Party. But anyway, the, these economic woes, uh, dissatisfaction, uh, drove the, uh, the, the, the protests, right? Um, and the inequality in Hong Kong is extreme. It's a capitalist wet dream, right? So you have people living in closets uh, and you have these rich tycoons who own entire streets, entire like hundreds of blocks, and they can raise the rent as much as they want. Uh, so all of these problems are caused by capitalism, uh, and which the people have been misled, have been misdirected have, uh, to blame to blame uh, Chinese socialism, the opposite, the exact opposite of, of reality. So yeah, it's just like you know Nazi Germany blaming the Jews on the for for the problems caused by capitalism. Uh, you know, the same thing is happening with Hong Kong. People blame their situation, which is caused by capitalism, on on socialism. It's really tragic. But I think I think Hong Kong is going, is going to be, be more peaceful now. But it's just going to become just no, another city. I see. So with the with the uh, due to the protests and the yeah, instability that is causing, people are going to move away from it, and investments going to sink, and it will become less of an important spot. Yes, absolutely. I think I think the protests definitely did uh, irreversible damage on the economy of the of the city and on its status as a special sort of uh, wonderful special place. I mean, the, the development the development is is going to be now focusing on regions surrounding Shanghai and making them into into a sort of uh, focus focus of uh, the economy. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, and um, I suppose yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be uh, what kind of conversation would we be having if we hadn't mentioned COVID nineteen or coronavirus uh -huh. in twenty twenty? Um, what do you think about the current sort of things being said by uh, Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo and various Western sources about there being a cover-up uh, and the sort of saber-rattling, if you want to call it that, against China right now? Well, that needs to be seen in a historical perspective as one 
in a series of almost countless attempts to uh, harm China under the Communist Party, right? Um, it's just another attempt at destabilization, at demonization, uh, just another wave of slander, of lies, um, that, that the imperialists have been seizing every opportunity to do since 1949, since the, the loss of China. Uh, Wikipedia, there's an article called The Loss of China. That's what, uh, meaning that this country that used to belong to the United States and to England was, uh, you know, was lost to, to the communist revolution. You know that the first industrialized cities in the United States, which was New Jersey and uh, a couple of other cities, the first modern industrialization of these cities was paid for by opium money. So China was amazingly lucrative as kind of a slave market, as a colony uh, for the colonial powers. It was um, I mean, I think I think a lot of this the history of the opium wars, of the opium holocaust, of uh, colonialism in China, is just now being rediscovered. I think a lot of it was hidden. Uh, I think in the coming years, a lot more is going to surface. I mean, the scale of the devastation and the scale of the exploitation that was happening during those 100 years of humiliation, I think, uh, is, is, uh, is going to be exposed, I mean, more than the tip of the iceberg, which, which we know about. But anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's ridiculous, I mean, what they're saying. Even the five eyes, right? Recently, just oh, last week, the five eyes, the intelligence community headed by the United States, what is it, Australia, England, U.S. France. And France and Germany. Yeah, the Western intelligence network has completely uh, contradicted the words of Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump uh, and saying that there's absolutely no evidence that this virus came from a lab in Wuhan. And yeah, anyway, it's just ridiculous. Are you familiar with Steve Bannon's role in propagating a lot of this nonsense? Apparently, his sportive group called the Committee on the Present Danger, China. Not surprising, but I don't know a lot about that. I don't know a lot about Steve Bannon's actual role in disseminating these uh, these lies. But of course, he always does. I mean, these guys, uh, him and Pompeo um, and uh, Marco Rubio uh, and uh, John Bolton. I mean, these guys are are always, you know, at the forefront of slander against China. Um, they were also the for, at the forefront of support for the Hong Kong protesters, right? Um, yeah, not surprising, but I don't know the details. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, like you said, I think it's it's quite a difficult, you know, is, is it even worth discussing if Five Eyes, like you say, if Five Eyes intelligence combined Western intelligence have said that there's no evidence to support it, it just seems like almost like a closed book uh, to me. So I, I suppose we should probably maybe explore a bit more of the slander or against China. And uh, I guess one of the things that people always bring up, and I think it's interesting to, interesting for us to discuss, 
is obviously uh, Xinjiang and um, you know the, the the situation there and the accusation of of, of some people call them concentration camps or re-education camps. But what, what do you think about that stuff that we always hear about? Well, we have to go back to Afghanistan. The um, in the 1980s, as the last uh, sort of major proxy operation in the Cold War against the Soviet Union, um, the uh, Mujahideen was trained and funded by the CIA. Uh, the um, uh, the entire wave of fundamentalism, the Wahhabist uh, fundamentalism in the Middle East, uh, and the extremist violence uh, factions were developed by the CIA to uh, to fight against the Soviets, who were invited by the socialist Afghan government to help with uh, to 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 help them fight U.S. imperialism. Um, the socialists uh, in Afghanistan wanting, you know, the resources, the very rich resources of Afghanistan for the Afghan people, which of course is not allowed, which cannot be tolerated under U.S. hegemony, empire. Uh, and so, anyway, so that was a pretty successful move on the part of the CIA as directed by, you know, the mastermind of these Cold War operations at the end of the color revolutions, uh, Brzezinski, the Polish um, mastermind of Cold War tactics. But anyway, so these uh, fundamentalist right-wing fascist, Islamo-fascist movements, uh, terrorist cells, uh, have found a new purpose in trying to disrupt the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is China's world historic process of decolonization and development of former colonized regions. Uh, so these uh, Saudi Arabia uh, backed, as well as Israel uh, and the CIA backed um, extremists, Islamic terrorists, organizations have been actively recruiting in, in Xinjiang for uh, decades, for many, many decades, for two, at least two decades, two or three decades. Uh, since that time, there have been more than 5,000 violent attacks on, uh, on both Han people as well as Uyghur people in Xinjiang, as well as other parts of China. Um, so this uh, extremism, violent extremism uh, problem is very serious in Xinjiang. And Xinjiang is a crucial part of the new Silk Road, a crucial part of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, which connects China via land to, uh, to Central Asia, uh, to to Europe um, and the West. So, so in order to combat this serious problem of extremism, China has uh, erected these education centers. They are schools. Um, NPR, 
the <laughs> um, the popular uh, radio program in the United States actually went there recently, and they did a report. Um, and the article that they released, they tried to demonize China as much as possible, but it's very clear from the photographs they took to the interviews that they held with uh, the teachers and the students that these places are just schools. The students go home on the weekends. Um, many of them are uh, are just, you know, uh, uh, criminals, actually, not even political criminals. Many of them are just normal criminals who have committed murder or robbery or whatever, but uh, many of them are uh, or have been infected by extremism. Um, so it is in the protection, it is for the protection of not just Han people, but of the Uyghur people that China has been re-educating these extremist elements and doing things like banning beards and burqas. Um, beards and burqas is not, has, have never been a part of traditional Uyghur dress. They come from Saudi Arabia and they are very much associated with extremism, with Wahhabism. So, um, so yeah, it's for the protection of Uyghur people as well as Han people, as well as just the prosperity of the region that these uh, ext extremist elements are being dealt with in a humane way that is in direct contrast to uh, Abu Ghraib, to in direct contrast to uh, 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 Guantanamo Bay, to the to the evidence, very much evidence, human rights violations that uh, the United States have been conducting in their quote war on terror end quote, and not even to mention, of course, the what twelve million to twenty seven million Muslims that have been slaughtered by the wars that the United States have waged in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria. Uh, so that is the U.S. way of dealing with terrorism, is waging war on innocent people, reducing entire cities to rubble, destroying entire countries and economies. And, uh, I mean, yeah, it's... it's Exactly, and humane, and through education, right? Education, okay, the, the response is in three, three prongs. The education is one part, the economic development is another, and the integration of Xinjiang, which is very remote, into uh, the networks of, of trade in China by building highways and, and uh, high-speed rail. This is high-speed high rail now connects Beijing directly to Xinjiang, to Wunxi. Um, um, so via these three three uh, ways uh, Xinjiang is much is much more prosperous than it has been for hundreds of years today is very prosperous uh, becoming very prosperous very modern um, and it is today much it is today more peaceful than it has been in the last three decades mm. so yeah it's very effective uh, when you give people education and training so that they can good, get good jobs uh, and be a productive member of society to combat poverty, uh, which drives 
you know, people into extremism, into the arms of extremist groups. Um, so yeah, it's been very effective. Mm. And, and it's just absurd how, how all of this is turned into the opposite in Western imperialist media. I mean, yeah. people, people don't believe, right? People don't believe that they can be lied to so completely. People yes. don't want to believe that everything that they've heard about China in the Western media, which is all owned by six corporations. Um, but, you know, at the same time, for the last 30, 40 years, our entire lives, we have seen fat demonized, right? Low fat this, low fat that, non-fat this, non-fat that. Fat is bad. Fat is bad for us. But now it's coming out. It's very clear to us now. Scientists are saying that fat is not bad for us at all. That we, the only reason we have been thinking that fat is unhealthy is because of a massive campaign paid for by the sugar industry to demonize fat. <laughs> Mm -hmm. right? so, I mean, right. just something, something so basic that people can be completely lied about, lied to. Yes. And yes. at the same time, they cannot believe that the enemy, the ideological enemy of the capitalist countries uh, can be lied about. In, Indeed. Uh, it, it does seem like quite a challenge that, like you just said, if, if people can be um, manipulated onto something that's on their table right in front of them, yeah, uh, it was almost, almost impossible to try and change their opinion on an abstract thing that uh, that they cannot see or even verify for themselves. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think perhaps it doesn't seem obvious, but China does border in Afghanistan. So to compare the building of high-speed rail and development of Xinjiang for its population and its sort of preventative measures to stop extremism, you can compare that with what's happened in Afghanistan and Iraq, which are not so far is that um, it was the last war, uh, it was the last part of the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And then after the Soviet Union fell, um, the U.S. sort of felt like they could do anything they want without repercussion. And they expanded uh, the, the war, you know, the war on terror against all of these disobedient states. And they ramped up their pressures on China as well um, for the the project for a new American century to extend, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, to extend U.S. hegemony into another century at least, uh, total full spectrum that dominance. So yeah, so I think I think a lot of Marxists in the West, a lot of uh, leftists in the West, are missing the geopolitical uh, perspective in their analysis of world events. I think a lot of these academics uh, who are constantly talking about source texts, source texts, source texts from the 19th century, you know, they're really uh, kind of dogmatically interpreting Marx uh, and class struggle and the proletariat and, you know, all of these things. And, and to, to a lot of these Western academic Marxists, Geopolitics almost doesn't seem to exist. Uh, they just sort of like ignore, you know, the concrete sort of uh, vying for power on, on a national, international stage uh, and according to national boundaries, of course. I mean, you have these Marxists that say like nationalism is bad. We are not nationalists. Like, 
we are Marxists, we are about class struggle, and they just completely ignore the fact that the major conflicts happening in the world today are happening according to along uh, nationalist lines, of course. Mm-hmm. Like the USA as the empire of the world that is that is trying to dominate every single part of this of this earth. Um, yeah. yeah, so actually to throw in a, perhaps a, a closing question, because uh, you, you've raised that, the, yeah, that, uh, that there's not enough geopolitical analysis and not enough geopolitical commentary from Marxists. Um, so you, you described how you know, China is rising with uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics as the sort of the flag and the way forward. And uh, China is going to develop the Belt and Road and, uh, you know, uh, mutual aid, mutual development is going to happen to the previously colonized or the sort of the, the, the less developed nations of the world. And China is going to play this role to develop all of these things. And imperialism will find it more and more difficult to exploit these nations. Um, doesn't it seem then inevitable that uh, as imperialist nations, particularly the U.S., finds a growing China and a stronger China with uh, less places to exploit and less easier places to exploit, is conflict between the two not inevitable? Of course it is. Um, Under the imperialist mindset, of course it is. I mean, um, the the U.S. as a major power still, of course, should work with China, should cooperate, which is what Beijing wants, uh, is cooperation, that we work together to tackle not only COVID-19, but climate change and all of these grave problems that are ailing our world. Um, But the imperialist mindset, I don't think, can be changed Um, overnight, over the next weeks or years. I I really, that's the pessimistic part. Um, I think think it's a a mindset uh, that is so deeply ingrained in the U.S. and in Europe as well. Um, I think a lot of imperialism has been has more of the imperialism that has played out in the world in the last hundred years uh, has been has been masterminded in Europe actually more than we know. But anyway, that's a tangent that we don't want to get into maybe so far. But yes, uh, conflict is is inevitable. But the U.S. is losing on every front. Um, they just completely quietly accepted defeat uh, to Huawei in their attempts to to ban Huawei and to destroy Huawei, they're now implementing Huawei networks all over the the U.S. itself. Um, I think think the imperialists are desperate. I think that's why the lies have become so brazen that they have become obvious to anyone who's looking. Um, I mean, contradicting their own intelligence agencies on COVID-19. That's just absurd, right? We're seeing more and more desperation. We're seeing just clutching at straws, really. What do you think the best outcome then is if there's conflict between imperialist class of the US and, and against China and perhaps the rest of the world? What, what's the best outcome? What's the best path to try and get through that? The best outcome is no war. The best outcome is, is if we can avoid, avoid war. I think if we avoid war, uh, which the imperialists are banging the drums of, for, banging the drums for um, constantly, I think I think the world will inevitably move towards a more peaceful, a more equal, 
uh, place. I think I think imperialism will recede. Uh, I think the best thing is is peacefully is uh, you know uh, the dominance of the U.S. just lessens gradually year by year and uh, until it becomes not you know and until it becomes just another country. I mean, mm. I Beijing does not want to see the destruction of the United States. And even I don't, as much as I, you know, I love the American people. I love uh, American culture. Well, African-American culture, uh, mostly, but I love American people and uh, I love European people. I love German people. There's fucking amazing people with so much amazing culture. Um, you know, uh, peace is what, what we socialists have always wanted uh, against war, right? Um so I think I think if we can avoid war, I think the the world will move to a better place, and that and that none of these problems are are unsolvable, uh, whether it's climate change or or uh, pandemics or or anything. Okay. Oh. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think not not only there's a little bit of socialism left in China. I think I think the entire tra- trajectory of modern China is still guided by Marxist Marxism and socialism um, think yeah 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 it's it's just it's maybe difficult to to recognize because of the ad- adaptations because of the reforms because of you know I mean it's a long game it's uh it involves a lot of contradictions um, okay uh, I, I guess what we can do now is uh, Charles, we've got a lot of co- topics covered and uh I still want to talk about so many more things. Um, particularly, I think, uh, if, if you don't mind, Joe, we could have you on in the future again for like, um, I, I particularly want to talk about your goods for the people stuff. Um, I don't know yeah. if you want to touch that now, or perhaps we should. Sure, we can. We can maybe briefly or. Yes, um, what, what is goods for the people? Okay, goods, is for, uh, goods for the people is, uh, is a company that I started. It's a fashion company. Uh, we're just doing T-shirts at the moment, um, but it's very much related to what we're talking about. It's uh, very much related to the embrace of the market. It's very much embraced to this idea of socialism that is moving on from the sort of Western ideas of revolutionary socialism, which is against uh, commodities, which is against consumption which is against style and against aesthetics and against design and against all of these things are have been thought of by probably majority of people who consider themselves leftists as degenerate as uh you know bourgeois as things that you don't want to touch or you want to stay away from and goods represents this idea that no, luxury is not bad in itself. What socialists want is luxury for everyone. We want luxury for the poor. Or mm. we, we want the poor to be no longer poor. We want luxury for everyone and, and not an exclusive thing. Right? Um, like the but recent. Sorry to interrupt here. Everybody is champagne socialist if we take over champagne means of production. Yeah, exactly. Champagne for everybody, like like uh, like the caviar, 
like the recent uh, you know Chinese companies companies making caviar affordable yes. affordable yes. for everyone. So we're and, not against caviar. We're against caviar only for the few. Exactly. Exactly. So, so goods for the people is it's about good. Uh, it's about nice designed, uh, beautiful clothing. Uh, has got some sort of, I suppose, perhaps a egalitarian sort of element to it, um, but also is got some Marxism in there somewhere. But it's a beautiful things for normal people. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so far it's very ideologically driven. I mean, our designs all convey a message. Uh, one of the new things that are not up yet in the next week they will be up is uh, actually a BRI uh, design. Which is BRI? Yeah, the Bridge uh, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Oh yes, okay. Uh, yeah, I just felt like such a world historic rec- uh, process of decolonization needed at least a T-shirt. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so that will be out very soon. Um, it's at goodsforthepeople.com. Goodsforthepeople.com, and you know we just cannot uh, give up the realm of aesthetics and style to the right, to the fascists, right? I mean, fascists have always been on point as far as fashion is concerned. Of course, the bourgeoisie, you know, control uh, style and taste. They have been controlling style and taste for the last, what, thousand years in Europe and, and in other places. Um, and uh, Hugo Boss, of course, the rich capitalists, have a class interest to support the fascists. And so, of course, um, but none of this means that I personally uh, think should mean that we leftists should give up looking good. You know, I mean, especially so much of, of the fascists, you know, like cool fashions are taken, are stolen from the working class and from us, from the leftists. I mean, everything from Doc Martens to uh, f- uh, polo shirts f- uh, to, to, to um, I don't know, I can't even think of, but so many, so many examples, right? Doc Martens was originally working class um, bomber jackets, flight jackets taken by the skinheads, the racist skinheads from the or- original non-racist working class Jamaican uh, culture, reggae music, solidarity, white, black, or people, working class people, solidarity culture. The original skinhead movement. Yes, the shirts. So yeah, goods. Goods is, is about this kind of moving uh, socialism in the West beyond uh, what it has been conceived of in the last decades um, and, and very much influenced by China. Very much influenced by this this you know, new idea of socialism. I mean, that sounds terrible as well, because the new left, we all know, is <laughs> is is a CIA, largely a CIA-sponsored sort of deviation from Marxism. So I don't want to say new left. I, there's no, I don't really have a good word to describe what I'm talking about, but mm. I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess progressive uh, moving leftism in the West forward. Mm. On a personal level, sorry, it's just uh, a little bit more. On a personal level, you know, after moving to Berlin, I have been sort of, you know, I've been, um, you know, I escaped Hollywood where I was, you know, doing pretty well financially for myself. Uh, 
And after coming to Berlin, I really got into Marxism and I really got into all of this stuff. So I was doing a lot of reading, a lot of thinking and not making money. So I was pretty poor for the last 10 years in Berlin and doing music and, you know, flying around the world, but not making money. And it wasn't until in recent years that I've, I've become really like not exaggerating, inspired by the Chinese Communist Party which is the biggest sort of inspiration in my own life, that I don't have to reject, you know, money. And I don't have to reject, you know, being successful in this capitalist world. That I don't have to be poor and I don't have to, you know, because for the, uh, when I escaped Hollywood, my idea was like, I don't want to be a part of that world ever again. Or like, I don't want to give my talents to these you know, like horrible, like, structures and you know i just wanted to be away from that and and after thinking about all of this you know about china and about reform and opening up and about modern china and development and i've, I've sort of you know realized that i should embrace the secondary contradictions in my life in my personal life as well and not be afraid of being successful like i can totally be successful within capitalism and that does not mean that I'm a bad leftist. Mm. I think I think what you're saying is probably going to reverberate with a lot of people, because I think a lot of uh, leftists, socialists, communists, whatever sort of label Marxists you want to have out there, do have, probably go through that struggle. And then sort of people say, "Oh, well, you're you're a communist. How how can you wear Levi's? And how you're a communist? How can you do this? And how can you do that?" So it's probably yeah. probably quite nice to see that you've been quite happy to embrace and find a way. To uh, to live with that and to thrive with 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 uh, with Marxist ideology in in a modern new way. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think I think yeah. Again, Marxism is not static. It's not mm. unchanging. It's not written in stone. It shifts and it and it adapts to every new era and every new set of conditions. Yeah. And so, you know, black uh, uh, specifically black clothing. We should not <laughs> like fascists. Do not own black clothes. Like ISIS does not own black clothes, and the Hong Kong, uh, uh, the Hong Kong fascist protesters do not own black clothes. Like I've dressed in black almost all my entire life because I just like it, and I'm, you know, I I think I think the color black uh, communicates the, the nihilistic tendencies in the West of living under fraudulent social order. Um, but all, it's sort of a wiping the slate clean, um, and uh, I mean, mostly it's. I guess I admit it's style. It's style. It's about what's looking, what looks good today um, in the conditions of the West. But yeah, most of our clothes are black. Okay, that sounds good. I mean, I'm sure people will take a look, but uh, I think I, I'll. Uh, I will say thank you very much, Jao, for for coming on. I think we're definitely going to have you on in the future to discuss maybe some more specific topics related African to China music. or related to anything else, really. Yes, yes, African music. Oh, yes, yeah, definitely. That would be fascinating to discuss uh, Kwaito and the uh, origins of it and perhaps some other things. I would definitely want to discuss that too. So uh, thank you very much for coming on, Jao. Yeah, thank you, guys. Благодарю вас. Thank you, comrades.
And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.